Hello and welcome to the podcast on Broadwater Parish in Worthing, a thriving Anglican church based in the parish of Broadwater, West Sussex in Worthing. We are one church across three sites and Christians have worshipped for over a thousand years at our church at St Mary's. This podcast features sermons from our services and interviews and other episodes and you can find out more by going to broadwaterparish.org.uk. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this most recent episode of the podcast. This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 13 beginning of verse 24. The parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Moving on to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, apologies at the outset for my voice. It's not very good today, but we'll see how far we get. Recently, when I was speaking from this pulpit, I talked about the fact that we are unique. Every single person is a one-off. That when they made you, they broke the mold. No one else is like you at all. David said, um, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So I thought, surely there's got to be a better word than fearfully. 
that you are fearfully made. So I checked out on Bible Gateway just about every other version that there is, and 98% of them use the word fearfully. So what does fearfully mean? Nothing to do with being frightened. It means this. It's quite a revelation to me. With great reverence, heartfelt interest, and with respect, God made you and me with great reverence, heartfelt interest, and respect. The senses of a a sculptor lovingly crafting each masterpiece. I want to describe one masterpiece to you that you don't know. It was a friend of mine, he's no longer with us, a very good friend of mine. Uh, In our late teens, we spent quite a lot of time together. He was called John Davis, and uh, he wasn't a Christian. He came from a cast iron atheist family. I've never met a family quite so entrenched and anti-God. So that was a struggle for him, but he was an open-minded person, and he wanted to know my feelings on a lot of things. He was quiet, unassuming. He was taller than me, a year younger than me, and he was shy. There was a particular girl that he was very interested in at school, and I said, well, you tell her, you know, ask her out. Let her know what you feel. And he said, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. It's better to travel in hope than arrive. I assured him with what little knowledge I had that that wasn't the case. Uh, He had a lot of interest in astronomy, knew a lot about the heavens and the constellations and the galaxies. I found it really interesting. And he did not share my taste in music. He liked classical music and he used to compose musical items on the piano that Though they were not my scene particularly, they were very, very impressive. In the conversations we had, which were on the harbour wall in Ilfracombe, he's in a bag of chips. We used to talk about all kinds of things, and more often than not, my Christian views came up in those discussions, and he always listened with interest and said, I'd quite like to come along to your, your youth group. So that was great. He came and he stayed for quite a while. And the only thing that terminated it was that at the end of the summer, he had to pursue further education. And he went to Cheltenham and became a town planner. Uh, Belatedly, he passed his driving test. And one day, on a wet road, he skidded and went into a lamppost and was killed instantly at the age of 22 really tragic, a great loss in my life, a very full person, and someone I have an awful lot of time for her, for him. And I went to the funeral, which was in Ilfracombe, and his family, a Welsh family, made it clear that that was the end of it. He was buried, he was gone, and the grave would not be marked. Years later, I revisited the cemetery and saw from a distance that the grave had been marked, perhaps by his older sister. At last, an acknowledgement of the person he had been and the love of his family, even if nothing spiritual. The top third of the stone had his name and the dates of birth and death. The rest of the stone was completely blank. 
I was very saddened by this. I knew that he was a lovely friend and an inspiration. You don't need to write much on a grave to make it clear the person was loved and remembered. I often wondered if I'd said enough, as I knew he was searching. But I do believe that God will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. John was so, so much more than a physical life that breathed for less than 23 years. Almost all graves include a social or spiritual comment or both, but not John's. So what has God, the divine sculptor, given us? A physical body, which we are wise to look after as best we can. Everyone believes that, even if they're sometimes neglectful. A societal life, it's a word we don't use very much, so we'll half the syllables and call it a social life, if you know what that means. Interaction with those around. It's not good for man to be alone. We need family, friendships, work colleagues, various social groups. Hopefully we all know that and invest in it by being loving, friendly, caring, and helpful. He who extends the hand of friendship will have friends. But our passage this morning concerns the third dimension, our spiritual life. Now, what, what does spiritual mean exactly? It's an elusive sort of word, and the dictionary definitions muddy the waters even further. High on the Google search list, near the top in fact, it says, a spiritual person is always happy and kind to others. That's sort of like a Ken Dodd, really, I suppose. So I looked up spirituality, and that was a little bit more helpful. An individual search for ultimate or sacred meaning and purpose in life, seeking a meaningful connection with some power bigger than yourself. There is a temporary urgency about this at a funeral, but then it fades soon afterwards when the company of friends whisks it away. There's a general stubbornness in society about accepting that which stares one in the face when the Bible is opened. The Bible itself reveals the pathway whilst accepting itself that few people will find it because they're not prepared to truly seek. We invest in the social and the physical, which will both end. Why are people so slow in investing in a life which knows no suffering and can last for eternity. Makes no sense. Jesus could not explain to mortal man what heaven is like because we could never comprehend it. So Jesus told parables to give us a glimpse. They are termed the parables of the kingdom, which is the one we read is one of them. Parables have one main message and we should beware not to find messages in it that aren't meant to be there. All the stories Jesus told were true to life. If they don't make sense, neither will the message. But we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on the main message, or we could come a cropper. What is the main message here? Here's a story of wheat growing alongside wheat, uh, weeds that have been deliberately sown. Darnel, which looks very much like wheat until the crop is fully grown, but is noxious and mildly narcotic. So it has to be removed from the wheat. There's nothing unusual about this. The separation 
could only take place at harvesting when the difference was clear. William Barclay says, the picture of a man deliberately sowing darnel in someone else's field is by no means only imagination. That was actually sometimes done. To this day in India, one of the direst threats which a man can make to his enemy is, is I will sow bad seed in your field. Let's see firstly what we cannot do with this parable. We cannot conclude from this parable that Satan works mostly at night in a dark and underhand manner. He does that sometimes, but mostly the devil masquerades as an angel of light, which is why he has the success that he has, revealing ways which seem right to a man, but are not. This parable is not about that. This parable, parable gives us no license to assess assess the person sitting next to you. Are they wheat or a weed? Because they're probably thinking the same thing about you. The parable is not about the here and now, however important that may be. It's not about somebody else. It is about you. Also, it is a truism, of course, that weeds do not change into wheat. That can't happen. That makes no sense. And the parables of Jesus always make sense. The parable is not saying that. The focus of Jesus is on the time of harvest. When we meet him face to face, for us, there is no time like the present for investing in our spiritual state or health. Why do we procrastinate? One of the young men I used to work with at Angmering School, I was as a youth leader, they're responsible for the rock bands. That's my kind of music, although they didn't play it particularly well. Uh, he uh, really enjoyed what he did. I had a really good rapport with a large number of mostly young men, but there were some girl bands as well. Um, and it was a good working relationship. And one day, he's called Alec, and he was uh, rolling his own cigarette, ready to go home. Now, he knew there was a rule that there's no smoking on the campus, and he would never go against me. I knew he wouldn't smoke it on the campus. And he would also listen to what I said. And I said, Alec, you know that's stupid, don't you? You know you're really making problems for yourself in the future. It's really not a good idea. And he said, I know, I know that, he said, but I'm having too much fun at the moment. Isn't there an awful lot of truth in human behavior there? We're having so much fun at the moment that other more important, serious issues kick down the road and probably will never happen. <clears throat> it's also obvious that we cannot conclude from this particular passage that heaven is like a barn in verse 30. However splendid barns can be presented like for a wedding, I so strongly suspect that heaven is better than that. But there is an issue here our physical exercise and habits promise something tangible and visual. When I stand in front of the mirror searching for the long elusive six pack, it's more of a half barrel these days, my dear wife helps things along by saying, have you weighed yourself recently? It's not really what I wanted to hear. Our social investment produces immediate and growing benefits, family bonding, stronger friendships. We can all understand that, but how can we envisage spiritual reward? It feels abstract 
because it's not of this world. Even though we can glimpse and feel it on occasions. Consider this. Jesus came into this world, was isolated by his family, even let down by his own disciples, was arrested, mocked, tortured, condemned, and crucified. He then went to prepare a place for us. What kind of place would be worth such a huge cost? Honestly, I have no idea. When we took Jess, our daughter, to uh, Disney World as a child, she asked what it would be like. I said, imagine the best place you could possibly visit, a place full of enjoyment and no disappointment. It'll be better than that. So, by that token, feel free to design your own heaven and look forward to it. Can't go wrong with it, because it'll be better than that. I'd like a guitar that understands what I'm trying to do with it. And where Cornish pasty and chips are actually good for you. Will it be like that? No, no chance at all. But I won't mind one bit, because it's designed by the one who can do more than I can ask or imagine and has a place prepared for me. The parable does have a sobering end-stage message, which we cannot ignore. Even a barn would be far greater outcome than a fire. The words weeping and gnashing of teeth occur seven times in the New Testament, six of them in Matthew's Gospel. It contrasts with the glories of heaven and depicts regret and anger. How often we get angry when we know we're at fault? The Jews had such horror stories in their own history in the fires of Gehenna. We have our own personal dreads with levity again. Mine could only be where the music is rap and the only food is vegan. That might sound facetious to you, but that is only because it is all irrelevant in the light of one single issue. If someone offered to pay all the bills for me to visit the seven wonders of the world in complete comfort with first-class flights, I would only go on one condition, and that is that Sarah must be with me. Otherwise, I'm not remotely interested. The appeal of heaven for me is that Jesus is there. Our parable today has the timing of the separation as its message. Another parable states the reason those who are sent away go with these words ringing in their devastated ears. Depart from me, I never knew you. Sarah dragged, uh, dragged me, um, invited me to go along to the Sullington Flower Festival. How lovely. Wouldn't any man love to do that? Um, well, I went. Could I describe it as underwhelming? That might be a little bit unfair, but I was certainly rather less whelmed than Sarah was. There was a little plaque just inside the door on a bunch of flowers. It said this, when I see a parish church, I pay a little visit. So when at last they carry me in, the Lord won't say, who is it? <laughs> it's not, of course, about going to church. It is, however, about truly knowing Jesus. Why do I want to be in heaven when this earthly life ends? Because Jesus is there. No other reason comes close. 
John 14, verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I may have confused you with my explanation of this parable. And without one concept, it does appear troubling. Everyone is either wheat or darnel, and darnel doesn't change into wheat. The concept we need to understand that God is omniscient. It was one of the words that Carl put on his box that was blowing around the field last week. Omniscient, describing God. He knows everything. He sees the end from the beginning. If you were to meet Judas Iscariot and the unknown thief on the cross, say, a year before Jesus was arrested, you would have seen one of them handing out food to 5,000 people and the other one who would happily steal a crust from anyone. You would have made your assessment as to who was wheat and who was darnel, and you would have been wrong. The fact that God already knows what choice you will make or maintain, and has prepared places accordingly, does not compromise your ability to choose. Watching a repeat viewing of an England penalty shootout shows the inevitable choice, high and right or low and left. You know you'll miss because you've seen the end but his choice was still freely made. The parable is not about where you are now, but about where you will be then. But you have no idea when then will be. Now is the time to invest in then. The final sentence of the passage, whoever has ears, let him hear, it means listen carefully to this. Give it your close attention. Sin is seen as an obsolete concept by many, perhaps most people. Perhaps a rather quaint but also harsh word for being naughty. In verse 41, Jesus makes it clear that sin is viral and deadly, and it has no place in the kingdom. The wages of sin is death. Three years ago, it's a true story, an American young man declared that COVID was just scaremongering. There's nothing harmful about it. So he had a COVID party to prove that he was right. And it was a popular move. Many went along. Some six weeks later in the hospital isolation ward, this young man uttered his final coherent sentence to his nurse. I think I've made a terrible mistake. It's not the most uplifting of passages in scripture, but it is essential. But if this truth were a coin, let us flip to the other side of it. Now is the time to invest in then. It would be entirely appropriate to ascribe it, describe it, inscribe it with a sentence that you know. You've got to concentrate here. Don't let your mind wander. You know this. And as my voice is rubbish at the moment, you're going to help me by saying the five words at the end of it, out loud, louder than I can manage. You will know what they are. Most of you will know what they are. And it will be an uplifting thought to end this morning. It was said by Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, Amen to that. See you at the harvest.